Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Please write a review on the Apple Podcasts app or at podchaser.com slash snoozecast. That's P-O-D-C-H-A-S-E-R dot com slash snoozecast. This episode is brought to you by Trim Mustachios. Tonight, we'll read St. Valentine's Day or The Fair Maid of Perth, written by Sir Walter Scott and published in 1828 as part of the Waverley Novels. Inspired by the strange but historically true story of the Battle of the North Inch, it is set in Scotland around 1400. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out our other story taken from the Waverley series titled The Maiden of the Mist, that aired on January 11th, 2021. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. provinces in Scotland. If an intelligent stranger were asked to describe the most varied and the most beautiful, it is probable he would name the county of Perth. 
the most interesting district of every country, and that which exhibits the most varied beauties of natural scenery in greatest perfection is that where the mountains sink down upon the more level land. The most picturesque, if not the highest hills, are also to be found in the county of Perth. The rivers find their way out of the mountainous region by the wildest leaps, and through the most romantic passes connecting the highlands with the lowlands. Above, the vegetation of a happier climate and soil is mingled with the magnificent characteristics of mountain scenery and woods, groves, and thickets in profusion clothe the base of the hills, ascend up the ravines, and mingle with the precipices. From the same advantage of situation, this favored province presents a variety of the most pleasing character. Its lakes, woods, and mountains may vie in beauty with any that the Highland Tour exhibits. While Perth contains, amidst this romantic scenery, and in some places in connection with it, many fertile and habitable tracts, which may vie with the richness of Mary England herself. The county has also been the scene of many remarkable exploits and events, some of historical importance, others interesting to the poet and romancer, though recorded in popular tradition alone. It was in these vales that the Saxons of the plain and the gad of the mountains had many a desperate and bloody encounter, in which it was frequently impossible to decide the palm of victory between the male chivalry of the low country and the plaided clans whom they opposed. One of the most beautiful points of view which Britain, or perhaps the world, can afford is, or rather we may say was, the prospect from a spot called the Wicks of Bagley, being a species of niche at which the traveler arrived after a long stage from Kinross, through a waste and uninteresting country, and from which, as forming a pass over the summit of a ridgy eminence which he had gradually surmounted, he beheld, stretching beneath him, the valley of the Tay, traversed by its ample and lordly stream, the town of Perth, with its two large meadows, or inches, its steeples, and its towers, the hills faintly rising into picturesque rocks, partly clothed with woods, the rich margin of the river, studded with elegant mansions, and the distant view of the huge Grampian Mountains, 
the northern screen of this exquisite landscape. There is still, we believe, a footpath left open by which the station at the Wicks of Bagley may be approached, and the traveler, by quitting his horse and walking a few hundred yards, may still compare the real landscape with the sketch which we have attempted to give. But it is not in our power to communicate or in his to receive the exquisite charm which surprise gives to pleasure when so splendid a view arises when least expected or hoped for, and which Crystal Croftangry experienced when he beheld, for the first time, the matchless scene. Childish wonder, indeed, was an ingredient in my delight, for I was not above fifteen years old, and as this had been the first excursion which I was permitted to make on a pony of my own, I also experienced the glow of independence, mingled with that degree of anxiety which the most conceited boy feels when he is first abandoned to his own undirected counsels. I recollect pulling up the reins without meaning to do so, and gazing on the scene before me as if I had been afraid it would shift like those in a theater before I could distinctly observe its different parts, or convince myself that what I saw was real. Since that hour, and the period is now more than fifty years past, the recollection of that inimitable landscape has possessed the strongest influence over my mind, and retained its place as a memorable thing, when much that was influential on my own fortunes had fled from my recollection. It is therefore unnatural that, whilst deliberating on what might be brought forward for the amusement of the public, I should pitch upon some narrative connected with the splendid scenery which made so much impression on my youthful imagination, and which may perhaps have that effect in setting off the imperfections of the composition which ladies suppose a fine set of china to possess in heightening the flavor of indifferent tea. Perth, boasting, as we have already mentioned, so large a portion of the beauties of inanimate nature has at no time been without its own share of those charms which are at once more interesting and more transient. To be called the fair maid of Perth would at any period have been a high distinction and have inferred no mean superiority in beauty, where there were many to claim that much-envied attribute. But, in the feudal times to which we now call the reader's attention, 
female beauty was a quality of much higher importance than it has been since the ideas of chivalry have been in a great measure extinguished. The love of the ancient cavaliers was a licensed species of idolatry, which the love of heaven alone was theoretically supposed to approach in intensity, and which in practice it seldom equaled. God and the ladies were familiarly appealed to in the same breath, and devotion to the fair sex was as peremptorily enjoined upon the aspirant to the honor of chivalry as that which was due to heaven. At such a period in society, the power of beauty was almost unlimited. It could level the highest rank with that which was immeasurably inferior. It was but in the reign preceding that of Robert III that beauty alone had elevated a person of inferior rank and indifferent morals to share the Scottish throne, and many women, less artful or less fortunate, had risen to greatness from a state of concubinage for which the manners of the times made allowance and apology. Such views might have dazzled a girl of higher birth than Catherine or Katie Glover, who was universally acknowledged to be the most beautiful young woman of the city or its vicinity, and whose renown as the fair maid of Perth had drawn on her much notice from the young gallants of the royal court. When it chanced to be residing in or near Perth, insomuch that more than one nobleman of the highest rank, and most distinguished for deeds of chivalry, were more attentive to exhibit feats of horsemanship as they passed the door of old Simon Glover in what was called Curfew Street, than to distinguish themselves in the tournaments, where the noblest dames of Scotland were spectators of their address. But the Glover's daughter, for, as was common with the citizens and artisans of that early period, her father, Simon, derived his surname from the trade which he practiced showed no inclination to listen to any gallantry which came from those of a station highly exalted above that which she herself occupied, and, though probably in no degree insensible to her personal charms, seemed desirous to confine her conquests to those who were within her own sphere of life. Indeed, her beauty being of that kind which we connect more with the mind than with the person, was, notwithstanding her natural kindness and gentleness of disposition, rather allied to reserve than to gaiety, even when in company with her equals. 
and the earnestness with which she attended upon the exercises of devotion induced many to think that Catherine Glover nourished the private wish to retire from the world and bury herself in the recesses of the cloister. But to such a sacrifice, should it be meditated, it was not to be expected her father, reputed a wealthy man and having this only child, would yield a willing consent. In her resolution of avoiding the addresses of the gallant courtiers, the reigning beauty of Perth was confirmed by the sentiments of her parent. Let them go, he said. Let them go, Catherine, those gallants, with their capering horses, their jingling spurs, their plumed bonnets and their trim mustachios. They are not of our class, nor will we aim at pairing with them. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, when every bird chooses her mate, but you will not see the linnet pair with the sparrowhawk, nor the robin redbreast with the kite. My father was an honest burgher of Perth, and could use his needle as well as I can. Did there come war to the gates of our fair burg? Down went the needles, thread, and chamois leather, and out came the good headpiece and target from the dark nook, and the long lance from above the chimney. Show me a day that either he or I was absent when the provost made his musters. Thus we have led our lives, my girl, working to win our bread and fighting to defend it. I will have no son-in-law that thinks himself better than me, and for these lords and knights I trust thou wilt always remember thou art too low to be their lawful love and too high to be their unlawful loon. And now lay by thy work, lass, for it is Holy Tide Eve, and it becomes us to go to the evening service and pray that heaven may send thee a good valentine tomorrow. So the fair maid of Perth laid aside the splendid hawking glove which she was embroidering for the Lady Drummond, and putting on her holy day kirtle, prepared to attend her father to the Blackfriars Monastery, which was adjacent to the street in which they lived. On their passage, Simon Glover, an ancient and esteemed burgess of Perth, somewhat stricken in years and increased in substance, received from young and old the homage due to his velvet jerkin and his golden chain, while the well-known beauty of Catherine, though concealed beneath her screen, called doffings of the bonnet from the young and old. As the pair moved on arm in arm, they were followed by a tall, handsome young man, dressed in a yeoman's habit of the plainest kind.
but which showed to advantage his fine limbs as the handsome countenance that looked out from a quantity of curled tresses surmounted by a small scarlet bonnet became that species of headdress. He had no other weapon than a staff in his hand, it not being thought fit that persons of his degree, for he was an apprentice to the old glover, should appear on the street armed with sword or dagger, a privilege which the jackmen or military retainers of the nobility esteemed exclusively their own. He attended his master at Holytide, partly in the character of a domestic or guardian, should there be cause for his interference. But it was not difficult to discern, by the earnest attention which he paid to Catherine Glover, that it was to her, rather than to her father, that he desired to dedicate his good offices. Generally speaking, there was no opportunity for his zeal displaying itself, for a common feeling of respect induced passengers to give way to the father and daughter. But when the steel caps, barrets, and plumes of squires, archers, and men-at-arms began to be seen among the throng, the wearers of these warlike distinctions were more rude in their demeanor than the quiet citizens. More than once, when from chance, or perhaps from an assumption of superior importance, such an individual took the wall of Simon in passing, the Glover's youthful attendant bristled up with a look of defiance, and the air of one who sought to distinguish his zeal in his mistress's service by its ardor. As frequently did Conachar, for such was the lad's name, receive a check from his master, who gave him to understand that he did not wish his interference before he required it. Foolish boy, he said, hast thou not lived long enough in my shop to know that a blow will breed a brawl, that a dirk will cut the skin as fast as a needle pierces leather, that I love peace, though I never feared war, and care not which side of the causeway my daughter and I walk upon, so we may keep our road in peace and quietness. Conachar excused himself as zealous for his master's honor, yet was scarce able to pacify the old citizen. What have we to do with honor? said Simon Glover. If thou wouldst remain in my service... Thou must think of honesty, and leave honor to the swaggering fools who wear steel at their heels and iron on their shoulders. If you wish to wear and use such garniture, you are welcome, but it shall not be in my house or in my company.
Conachar seemed rather to kindle at this rebuke than to submit to it. But a sign from Catherine, if that slight raising of her little finger was indeed a sign, had more effect than the angry reproof of his master. And the youth laid aside the military air, which seemed natural to him, and relapsed into the humble follower of a quiet burgher. Meantime, the little party were overtaken by a tall young man wrapped in a cloak, which obscured or muffled a part of his face, a practice often used by the gallants of the time, when they did not wish to be known, or were abroad in quest of adventures. He seemed, in short, one who might say to the world around him, I desire, for the present, not to be known or addressed in my character, but, as I am answerable to myself alone for my actions, I wear my incognito but for form's sake, and care little whether you see through it or not. He came on the right side of Catherine, who had hold of her father's arm, and slackened his pace, as if joining their party. Good even to you, good men. The same to your worship, and thanks. May I pray you to pass on? Our pace is too slow for that of your lordship, our company too mean for that of your father's son. My father's son can best judge of that, old man. I have business to talk with you and with my fair St. Catherine here, the loveliest and most obdurate saint in the calendar. With deep reverence, my lord, said the old man, I would remind you that this is good St. Valentine's Eve, which is no time for business, and that I can have your worshipful commands by a serving man as early as it pleases you to send them. There is no time like the present, said the persevering youth, whose rank seemed to be a kind which set him above ceremony. I wish to know whether the buff doublet be finished, which I commissioned some time since. And from you, pretty Catherine, here he sank his voice to a whisper, I desire to be informed whether your fair fingers have been employed upon it, agreeably to your promise. But I need not ask you, for my poor heart has felt the pang of each puncture that pierced the garment which was to cover it. Traitress, how wilt thou answer for thus tormenting the heart that loves thee so dearly? Let me entreat you, my lord, said Catherine, to forego this wild talk. It becomes not you to speak thus, or me to listen. We are of poor rank, but honest manners, 
and the presence of the father ought to protect the child from such expressions, even from your lordship. This she spoke so low that neither her father nor Konachar could understand what she said. Well, tyrant, answered the persevering gallant, I will plague you no longer now, providing you will let me see you from your window tomorrow, when the sun first peeps over the eastern hills, and give me right to be your valentine for the year. Not so, my lord, my father but now told me that hawks, far less eagles, pair not with the humble linnet. Seek some court lady, to whom your favors will be honor. To me, your highness must permit me to speak the plain truth. They can be nothing but disgrace. As they spoke thus, the party arrived at the gate of the church. Your lordship will, I trust, permit us here to take leave of you said her father. I am well aware how little you will alter your pleasure for the pain and uneasiness you may give to such as us, but from the throng of attendants at the gate, your lordship may see that there are others in the church to whom even your gracious lordship must pay respect. Yes, respect, and who pays any respect to me? said the haughty young lord. A miserable artisan and his daughter, too much honored by my slightest notice, have the insolence to tell me that my notice dishonors them. Well, my princess of white doe skin and blue silk, I will teach you to rue this. As he murmured thus, the glover and his daughter entered the Dominican church, and their attendant, Conachar, in attempting to follow them closely, jostled, it may be not unwillingly, the young nobleman. The gallant, starting from his unpleasing reverie, and perhaps considering this an unintentional insult, seized on the young man by the breast, struck him, and threw him from him. His irritated opponent recovered himself with difficulty and grasped towards his own side, as if seeking a sword or dagger in the place where it was usually worn. But, finding none, he made a gesture of disappointed rage and entered the church. During the few seconds he remained, the young nobleman stood with his arms folded on his breast, with a haughty smile, as if defying him to do his worst. When Conachar had entered the church, his opponent, adjusting his cloak yet closer about his face, made a private signal by holding up one of his gloves.
he was instantly joined by two men who, disguised like himself, had waited his motions at a little distance. They spoke together earnestly, after which the young nobleman retired in one direction, his friends or followers going off in another. Simon Glover, before he entered the church, cast a look towards the group, but had taken his place among the congregation before they separated themselves. He knelt down with the air of a man who has something burdensome on his mind, but when the service was ended, he seemed free from anxiety as one who had referred himself and his troubles to the disposal of heaven. The ceremony of high mass was performed with considerable solemnity, a number of noblemen and ladies of rank being present. Preparations had indeed been made for the reception of the good old king himself, but some of those infirmities to which he was subject had prevented Robert III from attending the service as was his wont. When the congregation were dismissed, the Glover and his beautiful daughter lingered for some time for the purpose of making their several shrifts in the confessionals where the priest had taken their places for discharging that part of their duty. Thus it happened that the night had fallen dark and the way was solitary when they returned along the now deserted streets to their own dwelling. Most persons had betaken themselves to home and to bed. They who still lingered in the street were night walkers or revelers, the idle and swaggering retainers of the haughty nobles who were much wont to insult the peaceful passengers, relying on the impunity which their master's court favor was too apt to secure them. It was perhaps, in apprehension of mischief from some character of this kind, that Conachar, stepping up to the Glover, said, Master, walk faster, we are dogged. Dogged, say thou? By whom and by how many? By one man muffled in his cloak, who follows us like our shadow then will it never mend my pace along the street for the best one man that ever trod it. But he has arms, said Conachar, and so have we, and hands and legs and feet. Why, sure, Conachar, you are not afraid of one man. Afraid, answered Conachar, Indignant at the insinuation, you shall soon know if I am afraid. 
now. You are as far on the other side of the mark, thou foolish boy. Thy temper has no middle course. There is no occasion to make a brawl, though we do not run. Walk thou before with Catherine, and I will take thy pace. We cannot be exposed to danger so near home as we are. The glover fell behind accordingly, and certainly observed a person keep so close to them as, the time and place considered, justified some suspicion. When they crossed the street, he also crossed it, and when they advanced or slackened their pace, the stranger's was in proportion, accelerated or diminished. The matter would have been of very little consequence had Simon Glover been alone, but the beauty of his daughter might render her the object of some profligate scheme in a country where the laws afforded such slight protection to those who had not the means to defend themselves. Conachar and his fair charge having arrived on the threshold of their own apartment, which was opened to them by an old servant, the burgher's uneasiness was ended. Determined, however, to ascertain, if possible, whether there had been any cause for it, he called out to the man whose motions had occasioned the alarm, and who stood still though he seemed to come out of reach of the light. Come, step forward, my friend, and do not play at bo-peep. Knowest thou not that they who walk like phantoms in the dark are apt to encounter the conjuration of a quarter-staff? Step forward, I say, and show us thy shapes, man. Why? So I can, Master Glover, said one of the deepest voices that ever answered question. I can show my shapes well enough, only I wish they could bear the light something better. Body of me, exclaimed Simon, I should know that voice. And is it thou and thy bodily person, Harry Gow? Nay, beshrew me if thou passest this door with dry lips. What, man, curfew has not rung yet, and if it had, it were no reason why it should part father and son. Come in, man. Dorothy shall get us something to eat, and we will jingle a can ere thou leave us. Come in, I say. My daughter Kate will be right glad to see thee. By this time, he had pulled the person, whom he welcomed so cordially, into a sort of kitchen, which served also upon ordinary occasions the office of parlor. Its ornaments were trenchers of pewter, mixed with a silver cup or two, which, in the highest degree of cleanliness, occupied a range of shelves like those of a buffet 
popularly called the bink, a good fire with the assistance of a blazing lamp spread light and cheerfulness through the apartment and a savory smell of some victuals which Dorothy was preparing did not at all offend the unrefined noses of those whose appetite they were destined to satisfy. Their unknown attendant now stood in full light among them, and though his appearance was neither dignified nor handsome, his face and figure were not only deserving of attention, but seemed in some manner to command it. He was rather below the middle stature, but the breadth of his shoulders, length and brawniness of his arms, and the muscular appearance of the whole man argued a most unusual share of strength and a frame kept in vigor by constant exercise. His legs were somewhat bent, but not in a manner which could be said to approach to deformity. On the contrary, which seemed to correspond to the strength of his frame, though it injured in some degree its symmetry. His dress was of buff hide, and he wore in a belt around his waist a heavy broadsword and a dirk, as if to defend his purse, which, burger fashion, was attached to the same cincture. The head was well-proportioned, round, close-cropped, and curled thickly with black hair. There was daring and resolution in the dark eye, but the other features seemed to express a bashful timidity, mingled with good humor and obvious satisfaction at meeting with his old friends. Abstracted from the bashful expression, which was that of the moment, the forehead of Henry Gow, or Smith, for he was indifferently so called, was high and noble, but the lower part of the face was less happily formed. The mouth was large and well furnished with a set of firm and beautiful teeth, the appearance of which corresponded with the air of personal health and muscular strength which the whole frame indicated. A short, thick beard and mustachios, which had lately been arranged with some care, completed the picture. His age could not exceed eight and twenty. The family appeared all well pleased with the unexpected appearance of an old friend. Simon Glover shook his hand again and again. Dorothy made her compliments, and Catherine herself offered freely her hand, which Henry held in his massive grasp, as if designed to carry it to his lips, but... After a moment's hesitation, 
desisted. From fear, lest the freedom might be ill-taken. Not that there was any resistance on the part of the little hand which lay passive in his grasp. But there was a smile, mingled with the blush on her cheek, which seemed to increase the confusion of the gallant. Her father, on his part, called out frankly, as he saw his friend's hesitation. Her lips, man, her lips, and that's a proffer I would not make to everyone who crosses my threshold. But, by good Saint Valentine, whose holy day will dawn tomorrow, I am so glad to see thee in the bonny city of Perth again, that it would be hard to tell the thing I could refuse thee. The smith, for, as has been said, such was the craft of this sturdy artisan, was encouraged modestly to salute the fair maid, who yielded the courtesy with a smile of affection that might have become a sister, saying, at the same time, Let me hope that I welcome back to Perth a repentant and amended man. He held her hand as if about to answer. Then, suddenly, as one who lost courage at the moment, relinquished his grasp and, drawing back as if afraid of what he had done, his dark countenance glowing with bashfulness, mixed with delight. He sat down by the fire on the opposite side from that which Catherine occupied. Come, Dorothy, speed thee with the food. And Conachar? Where is Conachar? He has gone to bed, sir, with a headache, said Catherine, in a hesitating voice. Go call him, Dorothy, said the old glover. I will not be used thus by him. His highland blood, forsooth, is too gentle to lay a trencher or spread a napkin and he expects to enter our ancient and honorable craft without duly waiting and tending upon his master and teacher in all matters of lawful obedience. Go, call him, I say. I will not be thus neglected. 